Hello, everyone, and welcome. I'm very happy to have Kyra Clipper as my guest today. As the director of the Advocacy for Children with Autism program and staff attorney at Learning Rights, Kyra Clipper oversees all special education advocacy efforts involving children with autism. In this position, Kyra has developed a knowledge base of relevant therapies, interventions, and unique issues affecting students on the spectrum. Kyra also conducts outreach and trainings focused on advocacy for students with autism. Prior to joining Learning Rights Law Center, Kyra was a law clerk at AARP Foundation Litigation, where she researched various issues that affect older Americans. She has also worked as a law clerk for the Disability Rights Legal Center and Pepperdine Special Education Advocacy Clinic. Through the clinic and these internships, Kyra attended IEP meetings, drafted due process complaints and letters to school districts, conducted legal intakes, and researched numerous disability rights issues. Kyra earned her BA in English from University of Southern California and her law degree from Pepperdine University School of Law. In her spare time, she enjoys reading and spending time with her daughter. Welcome, Kyra, and thank you so much for joining me today to talk about your work and the assistance you give to the special needs community. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. So to get started, please tell me, what is the Learning Rights Center, and what sort of work do you do through the organization? So Learning Rights Law Center is a nonprofit legal services organization. We practice exclusively special education law. I am a staff attorney here, and most of the cases I handle involve students with autism. Uh, A majority of my work involves advocating on behalf of parents and their children when there's a dispute with the school district involving the appropriate services and supports the student um, may be entitled to. All right, so in order to obtain those appropriate services and supports, the student and and their family have to work at getting an IEP. Can you please describe for me what is an IEP and how does a parent obtain it for his or her child? So an IEP is short for Individualized Education Program for listeners who may not know what the acronym stands for. Some people refer to it as an Individualized Educational Plan. It's basically a contract regarding goals, services, and supports for students with disabilities. The school district has to provide whatever in that document to the student while they're in school. Well, how does a parent know whether the IEP that they obtain is appropriate and whether the student is receiving the right services and supports that that particular student needs? In other words, how, what are the right questions to ask? How does a parent go about making sure that the IEP they get is the best IEP that they can get for their child? Okay, first I should mention that um, in order to be eligible for an IEP, the student has to have a disability, um, and the student also has to need or require special education services in order to make progress in school. Um, and that, uh, that entails Uh, more than academic issues. It includes social and behavioral issues. Um, I should also say that 
um, a school district is obligated under what's called their child find duties to assess students for uh, special education and for an IEP whenever they suspect that a student within their boundaries uh, requires special education services. Now, going back to your question, once a parent has an IEP for his or her child, it's important that the student is assessed in all areas related to their suspected disability. Um, they, we want to make sure they've been assessed for um, autism or a learning disability or any disability that the teacher or the parent suspects. In addition to that, we want to make sure they've had assessments for what's called related services. And those are supplemental services in the IEP, like speech and language therapy and occupational therapy, um, behavior therapy that a student might require in order to um, make progress at school. Okay. And uh, so once these evaluations have been done and it's time to go into the IEP meeting and you know, the parent sits down with the school administrator and teacher and whomever is there, how does the parent determine that the IEP goals that are being set are appropriate for their child and that the supports that the school is offering are enough and, and are also appropriate for what the student's needs are? So once we have appropriate assessments, um, we want to make sure the parent has uh, her students or his students' records. Um, and, and from the records, sometimes you can tell whether or not the child is making progress. You want to look at the IEP goals and see from year to year, is your child um, meeting those IEP goals? You want to look at the report cards to see if your child is passing each of the classes and, and not receiving Ds. Ds to me are not passing. So Cs are better. You want to look at state testing to see how well your child's doing um, on state testing. There are some students with certain disabilities that may not be able to um, meet the requirements of state testing, but that, that's different and that's very unique to each individual child. But for students who are um, on a general education curriculum, you want to look at state testing to make sure from year to year they're actually meeting the state standards. Um, and another way, um, which is a little bit more complicated, is to look at the IEP um, from the previous year and the IEP from the current year and look at the present levels of performance, where your child was functioning in each area of need, like math, reading, writing, social skills, and see if there's any growth, um, any growth that you can see from looking at those present levels of performance. If this year um, your child could do addition, subtraction, and division, but then the next year um, they can't do addition or subtraction, they've regressed, um, then that's, for example, an, uh, you know, a sign that perhaps your child is not making progress. Um, and then just anecdotally, if you see that last year your child had many friends and was being very social, and then the next school year your child is isolating, I think it's really important for um, a parent to be in good communication with their teacher so they're aware of those types of issues and to see what kind of skills um, a parent observes um, him or herself 
regarding the child's uh, progress or lack thereof? So my understanding is that talking about performance and, and things that support the student in that performance, um, there are accommodations and there are modifications that can be specified in the IEP. Can you talk a little bit about the differences between those and perhaps give a couple of examples of what some of those things are? Okay, so um, an IEP can list accommodations and, a modifi and modifications uh, as well as other services. Um, so in terms of services, I think it'd be better to and accommodations and modifications, I think it'd be better to talk about um, services first, and then we can get into some of the accommodations and the modifications. So with services, a child might have academic services. They may have uh, be in a special day class or um, a special education setting for part of the school day, or they might have a special edu education teacher come into the classroom and provide support, or they might have a special education teacher pull them out of the classroom and provide support, and those are more academic-based services for reading, writing, and math. And then there are related services that a child might have, and those are the ones that I mentioned earlier, like speech therapy, occupational therapy, physical therapy, those type of related services. And then accommodations and modifications could be provided on top of those services in an IEP. With an accommodation, um, I can give you some examples. Some frequent ones that I see in IEPs include um, seating in close proximity to the teacher or um, repetition of instructions. Uh, those are some pretty, pretty common ones. In terms of modifications, um, modifications usually involve changing uh, what the student is learning within the classroom setting. With accommodations, the student is usually learning the same material as other students. Um, they just might be learning in a different way. For example, in math, a student is learning double-digit addition. The student, one student might have 10 problems, or the whole class might have 10 addition problems. For the student with an IEP, they might have five addition problems. Um, so they might have an, an accommodation for a shorter testing um, instrument or um, shorter homework. So that's more of an accommodation. For modifications, um, the, the curriculum is typically modified, and that goes usually for students who have uh, intellectual disabilities, um, and they may have other disabilities as well. But say, for example, a student with special needs um, is mainstreaming or going into a general education classroom for part of the day, and then the other part of the day, they're um, in a special education classroom. The special education classroom moves at a much slower pace. They may be um, in high school, but they may be learning material at an elementary school level. So when they move into um, the high school general education classroom for mainstreaming, uh, the material might need to be modified or changed significantly so that they can participate in the classroom 
uh, instruction, but also receive benefit from that. Does that make sense? I know that was absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for clarifying that. Um, so tell me, what if a parent disagrees with the IEP? What are the options? Uh, what are the legal options? And what can a parent do about changing the services or getting services and accommodations and modifications that they feel their child needs and doesn't have? So I'd say the the number the first thing a parent needs um, is the records. Parents are entitled to a copy of their records. In California, it's uh, within five business days. That's the deadline for a district to provide records within uh, five days of a written request. Um, other states have different laws, um, but California, it's five days. So it's important to have your records so you can tell whether from year to year your child is making progress. And if you do consult with an advocate or an attorney like myself, you have those records available. So number one, get a copy of your records. The second thing I would say is that I advise parents typically to never sign an IEP on the same day. When parents are at an IEP meeting, they're often there by themselves with you know, five or ten district employees, and a lot of the uh, employees often pressure parents to signing the IEP on the same day. I advise parents to take the IEP home, review it, and think about it, perhaps get a consultation, make sure things in the IEP are as what was said by the district during the IEP meeting. Even when I go to IEP meetings, I do not sign the IEP on the same day. I take them home with me. And sometimes those documents are 30-plus pages. So the other important thing I would say if a parent's in disagreement with parts of the IEP is that they can say so during the IEP meeting, and they can ask the district to document their disagreement in the IEP notes. They can also prepare a parent statement or a parent letter after the IEP meeting that they will, should ask to be attached to the IEP meeting, IEP document. Um, and this document, this parent statement, can explain what the parent disagrees with and the, what the parent agrees with. Um, that way their disagreements are documented in writing. And then I always tell parents to keep proof that they've submitted this parent statement or parent letter to the district. I tell them to get it stamped by the school district or to fax it from their local office supply store. Um, that way they have some sort of proof that the disagreement has been documented. Um, another option for a parent that's um, what I called more uh, soft advocacy, it doesn't involve litigation, um, is actually uh, asking for an independent educational evaluation from the school district. Every time the district conducts an assessment, a parent has a right to disagree with the assessment and request an independent educational evaluation at public expense, which means the district has to pay for it. So whenever a parent requests what's called an IEE, the district has two options. They can either pay for the evaluation or um, this sounds a little bit scary, but uh, <laughs> or the district can file for due process against the parent in order to prove that the 
district's evaluation was appropriate. I do have to say that a district filing against a parent is rare. It happens, but it is very rare. More often than not, the district does end up funding the independent evaluation. And this, through this independent evaluation, a private evaluator goes in and assesses the student and determines um, what the student needs and helps guide the IEP team. And that way the parent has an expert outside of the IEP, outside of the school district, telling the team, the IEP team, what the student might need. Now there are two more um, aggressive approaches, and that's actually when I become involved in my office more often. One is a compliance complaint, and that's a complaint with the California Department of Education. Um, with the California Department of Education, the parent files a complaint, um, usually for procedural violations. Um, let me give you an example. If an IEP says a student is supposed to receive 30 minutes a week of speech, but the school loses their speech therapist, they're on medical leave or disability leave, um, and then the student doesn't receive the speech services. The parent can file a compliance complaint with the California Department of Education. There's even a form online to get the school to provide those services and to get the school to provide compensatory services to make up for the services the student didn't receive in the past. Now, the other option is a due process complaint, and that is what I'm most familiar with, and that's what I spend my practice and my time at Learning Rights doing the most of. It's basically a lawsuit against the school district filed with the Office of Administrative Hearings, or OAH, when a parent disagrees with what's offered in the IEP or um, with one of the assessments or if there's an issue with eligibility regarding their student with special needs. So with this process, there actually is a hearing. Um, there's a judge, and a judge makes a decision about whether the IEP or the assessments or the eligibility are appropriate or not. Um, most cases do not go to hearing. There are other options within the due process proceedings, like mediation. I don't want to get too complicated and overwhelm your listeners, but due process is an option when um, some of the softer advocacy does not work, when a parent is, um, they've done everything they can on their end in terms of letter writing and IEP meeting attendance, and there's just a disagreement that can't be resolved any other way. Well, I completely agree with you, and I don't think a parent should ever be afraid of taking the reins in their hands and availing themselves of the tools that are available to them to ensure that their child gets what they are supposed to be getting, receives the services and supports that they should be receiving. And I know I've sat in IEP meetings, and you're absolutely right. They pressure you to sign it right then and there, and they usually use a line, something like, well, you know, we can't implement any of this until you sign it. It. And to which my response was, that's fine. You know, uh, I think, you know, we've waited this long. We can wait a few more days <laughs> you know, <laughs> so that I can actually review it and then, you know, make any of my, uh, you know, disagreements known and you know, perhaps we can change it and then, you know, sign it when, you know, when we're all happy with it. 
Um, and uh, I've also been in, in, you know, due process hearings and, you know, and really had to, had to go to bat in the past, you know, for my son who's, you know, now grown and, you know, out of high school. But uh, I, I do remember those meetings uh, very, very well. And um, so if someone wants to hire you, let's say, for uh a, an issue that they're having, they've done everything they can do, and the school district just isn't cooperating, and it does end up going to something like due process. Um, how do you work? Let's say uh, you know it's a, a single parent, you know, on a very limited budget, and and they can't just necessarily pay out of pocket for your services. What other options do they have? Does your center work with a parent in that situation? So we actually represent only low-income parents up to 250% of the poverty line. So we do in-office intakes for parents who meet our income guidelines. And then we charge a small fee for intakes, either $10 or $50, depending on the level of income. And then after that, uh, if we do decide to take on a case or, or open a case, our legal representation is completely free. There are some small fees if we attend an IEP or write a letter for some of our higher income parents, but for a majority of our parents, our legal representation is completely free. Um, The other option we have is our TIGER program, Training Individuals for Grassroots Education Reform. We train parents Uh, hundreds of parents on special education advocacy. We have a year-long program called TIGER where students or parents, parent students, meet once a month with a TIGER teacher uh, who teaches them how to advocate for their child with special needs. And that also is completely free. For parents who can't make it to one of our, we usually have five, six, or more locations. We also have eTiger online through our website so that parents can learn more about special education advocacy. But that alone often is not enough for some parents. So we do offer intakes and legal representation, which is what I do much of. That program sounds fantastic, Kyra. Um, Tell me, is there anything else that you'd like to add at this point that we haven't covered? And what do you think is the most important takeaway for our listeners to remember from our conversation? I think the most important takeaway is probably involving uh, the IEP process and not signing an IEP right on the spot taking it home and reviewing it. I hear that story that you just told so so many times over and over from so many different parents about being pressured into signing IEPs. There's no deadline to sign an IEP. That doesn't mean that a parent should take a year to sign an IEP, but there is no deadline to sign an IEP. So parents shouldn't feel pressure to sign an IEP meeting the same day that the IEP occurs. Take it home, review it, think about it, And the second thing I would say is put everything in writing. Make sure that disagreements are put into writing, that when you submit assessment plans or IEP consent page, make sure everything is in writing so you have good documentation of what you disagreed with and what you believe your child needs. That's excellent advice, Kyra. So how can our listeners reach you if they have questions or they want to know more? 
listeners can call us on our general line. It is 213-489-4030. We also have a website. It is learningrights.org. Okay, and can you repeat that number one more time and spell the website out for the listeners just to make sure they get it correctly? Yes, of course. Our general line is 213-489-4030, and our website is learningrights.org. That's L-E-A-R-N-I-N-G-R-I-G-H-T-S dot O-R-G. Well, thank you so much, Kyra, for your time and the extremely helpful information you've shared with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. I also want to thank our listeners for spending a part of their day with us. I'm Gilda Evans, reminding you to take care of yourself and that special person in your life.